Hello and welcome to this week's Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Very good, thank you. Excellent. Yeah, another interesting week on the markets, and it's what you've led the uh, Alpha report this week with, which is the the whole repo thing mm. that's been going on in the US. A very confusing thing that that's been sort of in, interpreted, misinterpreted, and uh, and you've kind of put some thinking behind that, which we should perhaps briefly discuss. Uh, and then we're going to talk about a few companies: uh, Kingfisher next, SSE, SSE, and JD Weatherspoon. Yeah. Let's start with the whole repo shenanigans in the US. What the hell is this? Because it's caused a bit of fear. And yeah. we don't like fear in markets. It's caused a bit of fear and it's actually demonstrated, certainly to me, and I you know, I spent quite a bit of time looking around the internet and on various websites to see if any esteemed financial publications or journalists could make head and a tail of it. And no one really could. T- tell us what's actually happened. So what's happened is that I have a situation here where repo stands for a repurchase agreement. And the repo market is a big part of the financial markets, day-to-day financial markets, where banks go for money, essentially, to run run their... It's, it's, it's liquidity, it's cash, to run their day-to-day operations. And what they do is they tend to put... They go to another party, can be a broker, um, can be the central bank sometimes... And what they do is they put up collateral. So what they do is they go to another party and say, look, I have I want X. Here's X amounts of bonds as collateral. So the the lender buys the bonds, say, say like government bonds, buys the bonds off the bank, and then the bank agrees to repurchase them. That is the repo bit of it um, at an agreed time and agreed price. And the difference between what the lender pays and what the bank buys them back at is the interest rate. This is kind of related to LIBOR, isn't it? This is uh, a similar sort of thing. And base rate. You know, theoretically, this should track, pretty much track the base rate. And what happened in America earlier this week is we got a big spike in the repo rate and it went up as, you know, five, then eight, and then I think... Um, got as close to sort of like 10%, which is like real sort of panic stations, thinking, what is going on here? And all sorts of uh, explanations have been given. For example, um, companies were withdrawing cash from banks to pay their tax bills. There was also big, a uh, big treasury bond issuance, which required cash to buy it. And it seemed that the banks didn't have enough cash. And um, which I sort of find absolutely incredible that that banks um, in this day and age are running short of cash, and of course it gets people chattering, thinking, "Is there a banking? This, is there a banking problem out it, here?" It looks again? like a big stress in the system. Yeah, it looks like a stress in the system. People start chatting and saying, "You know, why? Why is this happening?" And you know, you get all sorts of rumours and. Rumours on top of rumours. And it's all all calmed down a bit now. But the Federal Reserve actually had to intervene in this market and pumped $125 billion into this market to so that banks basically had enough cash. And um, I, I find it utterly incredible. And it's all calmed down now. And I think what I find reasonably reassuring is that <laughs> 
um, talking with some various esteemed people on on Twitter, um, is that if there was a real problem here, other markets would have spiked because there would have been fear of a contagion and it would spread. And at the moment, everything's calmed down again. But I think what it hammers home to you or should hammer home to you and every other investor is the capability of the financial system to give unexpected shocks. And also the fact that really when it comes to banks, no one's got a clue what's going on until the proverbial hits the fan. Isn't it normal, though, for the Federal Reserve to intervene in this way when yeah. there are these sort of confluences of stresses that, that, that create yeah. this problem? Yeah, it is a role. I mean, the, 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 the central banks do things called open market operations where they go into the market and provide liquidity all the time. Um, so this is this is a, a, no, a normal part, but... Um, Generally speaking, what's what, what's been happening over the last five years, or certainly not even the last five, the last ten years, if we sort of go back to the sort of financial crisis and we get quantitative easing. So what happened with quantitative easing is that the government, the central banks created money out of fresh air and they used it to buy bonds, mainly off banks. And that turned those bonds into cash. And what tended to happen is that Instead of lending it out, the banks then just put the cash back on deposit at the central at the Federal Reserve. And what happened is that the reserves of the banks got bigger. But for the last sort of four or five years or so, those reserves have actually been going down. Is that because they've been lending it? I think so, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that, but that's, that's the, obviously the implication is that that money has been taken out and it's been put into the economy. Uh, it's been it's been lent out, and that reserves have actually now got down. And you know, the big thinking is is do the banks have enough? Because it's we all we're all led to believe that you know the banking system is in very good shape. You know, people talk about the the capitalization of the bank. They look at the amount of equity and buff, the buffers of equity they have to absorb losses. We're told that that's hunky dory that's great and then but there's a difference between obviously there's a difference between capitalization being well capitalized well financed and being liquid um and i'll be brutally frank i don't really know what's going on and i'm not so sure lots of other people do as well and i think uh, i think that's a point you make that you know banking crises sort of come out of nowhere yeah um and this maybe isn't one and i and, I, and you also say that you're kind of reassured that when we have a, an issue like this, there is firepower to actually deal with it. But ultimately, we, we're all sort of somewhat in the dark here. Well, there was, there was, yeah, absolutely. But obviously, it got, it got, um, it got more talk going that actually this was if the bank, the Federal Reserve intervening, was almost like a form of quantitative easing. Um, if they start. If they start buying bonds again to provide liquidity and to provide reserve, it's essentially a restarting of QE is what, what some people are talking about. And it's, you know, a lot of people think that that's what the bank will do anyway. Again, they've cut interest rates this week. I think there'll be more cuts to, to come. And will they, print, will they print more money? But back to the banking thing, 
is that the fundamentals of banks aren't changing in, in that they lend out money on a long-term basis and they are financed largely by deposits which can go out the door at very short notice. So there is a maturity mismatch. There is always a maturity mismatch between the assets of a bank and the liabilities and the funding of a bank. And that always has the potential to cause problems at some time or another. You hope it doesn't, most time it doesn't, but the risk is always there. Watch this space. Keep a close well, let's eye. Just hope, yeah, let's just hope we don't have this again. And one thing you do say is, I mean, despite this you know, specific concern this week and, and, and broader concerns about, you know, the state of the global economy uh, and the rate of growth that we're seeing, is that actually share prices seem to be doing quite well still? Yeah, I think I think it's actually quite encouraging that the stock market did not sell off massively on this um, and, and has kept pretty stable. What What is interesting is that the bond market over the last week or so has actually sold off quite quite a lot. And Obviously, the bond market is the key to every other market, and it underwrites the value of the stock market to an extent. And the only thing I would say is that, going back to this repo thing, is that, fingers crossed, everything's all right. But if we if we are entering a situation where the Federal Reserve has to inject more liquidity into the repo market to stop interest rates spiking, then it's telling you that in the real world, it's having to work really hard to keep actual real-world interest rates low. I, I guess what we should be looking out for is if, if this happens again. So a one-off we can cope with, we can handle, we can, we can sort of go, okay, this is normal. If it happens again and again and again, then we might actually start having to think yeah, more carefully about it. I think so. I think, I think it's calmed down now. I'm, I feel reasonably happy that this, is, this has been dealt with. But I, I, I mean, I find it fascinating and and confusing in equal measures because it just it just shows you that you know these things do happen mm. should we uh should we move to uk shares yeah, uh, yeah. No, let's start with um kingfisher yeah so this is a i mean it's an ugly share price chart it's um it's being q it's screw fix and and, and, and some stuff in France. Castorama and uh, brico depot and there's got bits in turkey poland that kind of thing. But essentially, it's UK and France. UK, France, and then Poland are the three main profit generators. You know, the bricks and mortar side of this business is just horrible. And it's been horrible for a long time. And it seems that this is a company that's really lost its way. Um, it's had a, a chief executive who is leaving, who has pursued a strategy of trying to get the profits up by cutting cost getting buying you know buying stuff better and getting purchasing gains getting the gross profit margins up and getting extra profit that way but that actually gets away really of what successful retailing is all about and it's selling more stuff it's engaging with your customer so that they buy more stuff from you and this is where the large chunk of kingfisher is struggling it's 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 odd in some respects because you know you look at companies like Howden's, yeah, which sells kitchens and they're doing very well. Yeah, you look at the the general sort of DIY market and home base is really struggling. So you know you, you know in the UK at least, Kingfisher is has a good position competitively. You would think what's what, what's going wrong? Why why are people not 
going through the doors? I think there's 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 been a shift from, and it's been going on for a while, away from DIY to people actually getting getting tra- a man, getting a man in, getting the trades trades people in to do it. Obviously, Howden is largely a trade facing business, and Screwfix is as well, and it's telling those the performances of those two businesses which are more trade focusing trade focus sorry are doing very well and the consumer facing stuff is not doing very well and you know kingfisher's got big problem with b&q in that it's got these massive massive diy warehouses huge selling area huge square footage big overheads and you just can't sell enough stuff to make the economics stack up. You, you mentioned in your Alpha report the, the lease liabilities that it has there. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a very, very large number. Yeah, I mean, really what they need to do is just shut the whole lot down. But it can't. And, and, and stick with, stick with Screwfix. But, but, but as you say, you know, to, to shut down those big oh, stores would, would cost it billions yeah. in, in, in provisions, basically. Yeah, yeah or, you know, you'd, you'd, have, you'd have to pay out all the, all the remaining lease liabilities, which is like two and a half billion. We, I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah, Mar- Screw- Screwfix is a great business. I love Screwfix. In fact, that's where I go. Yeah, me too. I actually wrote an editorial about this years back because I was buying, I was trying to buy, this is a, sorry for this tangent, but I wanted to buy, you know, those things you stick in like plasterboard that expand as you, yeah. drywall yeah. bolt, anchor bolts. Yeah, yeah. I went into B&Q and they were like three for £10, yeah. something ridiculous. I went to being uh, Screwfix and they were, you get a whole big box of them for like a fiver. Yeah. And I and I know I could not get my head around how you've got the same company selling the same products essentially this is at what, such different prices. This is what sort of confuses me because it think think do these two businesses talk to each other? Because you look at it from a consumer point of view and you go into screw fix, and in my opinion, just just layman's opinion, the quality and the range of the products is much better than than what's being sold in B&Q. And also the prices are extremely good as well. And it's an incredibly simple transaction process. Sit on your computer at home, order it, 10-minute drive, pick it up, no queuing, no car parking problems, you're in and out, back home, job done. And this this is a retail formula that works beautifully. And you can see it in the figures that you've got 10% sales growth, you've got 5% like-for-like sales growth. You know, there are not many retail businesses that are doing 5% like-for-like. Mm. And you've got the scope to um, to still open more units. I think they're up to about six, just over 680 now. They think they can go to 800. And they're also looking to open up in Ireland, France, and Poland. And this is this is, to me, where I think, this is where I think there is an opportunity or possible opportunity in this company because it's either a complete dog and, and no hope and Screwfix is a jewel that's essentially trapped in a really bad place and you can't see the value of that shine out or there's something that could that can be done to make Screwfix deliver a higher share price than what we've got now because the share price is what pretty close to 10 year low um 
the shares are on like eight and a bit times earnings. They yield over five. The dividend is covered twice, more than twice. So I think we're, you know, famous last words, but we're a, we're a while away from a dividend cut unless something catastrophic happens. You've got a new chief executive coming in from Carrefour, um, and we'll see what he does. But in, this looks like a business that, that may need an axe taking to it and something a bit more radical than what's gone on already. But I think... Kitchen thinking, maybe from a new chief exec. Yeah, I think I don't, you know whether whether the balance sheet can take it. I don't know. That, that's something that I would look into. But there's huge amounts of pessimism priced into this share. It's not the kind of it's not the kind of share I would go for in terms of you know long term buy and hold, leave it to compound. But you just there is there is a great business in here. And it's being spoiled by the other stuff, and the price just keeps the share price keeps going lower and lower and lower, and it gets to a situation where you just think, when do we get to a point? And this is the work I would need to do. When do we get to the point when actually you can buy Screwfix really cheaply by buying Kingfisher shares? Do, do we know in terms of like profit contribution? In the UK, no, it doesn't. Specifically, doesn't but they don't break us. it. They don't break it up. Just fine, intriguing, because you know you'd love to know what it what it is. Um, it would kind of tell you the value of Screwfix vis a vis the whole business, though. It, it would tell you the value of Screwfix, and it would tell you how terrible the rest of it was. Mm, maybe that's why they don't break it. Up then. Um, but you know, I, I imagine you've got investment bankers forever knocking on the door of Kingfisher. Trying, trying to. Um, I, I mean, I've, I've sort of speculated in the past that you know, of putting Howdens and Screwfix together to create a trade, a trade focus super brand. But you've got super business. You've got some other good. I mean, you've got Tops out there as well. Yeah, you've, you've got Wolsey now, which is obviously the plumbing side. of And things. you've got a lot of private stuff, you know, like Tool Station and and, and things like that. So. This, mm. this is the way. This is the way it's going, and it's not a great business in its whole. But you just think there's a. I if I I would I would love to own a shares in Screwfix. I really would. Well, investment bankers, if you're listening, there you go. There's your challenge. Um, I mean, I, actually, my experience of being here recently is that that a lot of what it does is sort of home homewares stuff. You know, fairly bog standard homeware stuff, and people like Dan Elmer leagues ahead of it yeah yeah. tapping into that market so yeah interesting corporate situation that we we can expect to develop i think some not one to own now something's got to happen with this eventually i think should should we move on to uh i know you like a bit of positivity phil i do let's talk weatherspoon yeah uh you know obviously weatherspoon attracts a lot of attentions for the viewpoints of its very outspoken founder He's he's a bit of a maverick. It, he is. It is true. He is, and I I I I would suggest to investors park all that to one side. You don't need to listen to that, and just look at this 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 business. This is an extremely well run business that is knocking spots off the rest of the pub sector. You know, in terms of its its you know it, it had its full year results back end of last week, and I think it's delivered like for like sales of over six percent. On top of, of last year's figures, which were a similar kind of number, 
Um, the problem is, is that all those extra sales have been eaten up in terms of in terms of extra cost. But you know, one thing you cannot accuse the company of is it is that it doesn't it doesn't scrimp on costs. It looks after its staff pretty well. I, th- I think that's a really important thing, actually. You know that, that okay. You know, shareholders want to see profit. Yeah. But at the same time, if you run your business in a way that puts pressure on the people that are actually running those businesses at the front line, yeah. it's it, it's not going to last very long. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not here to you know fly a flag and praise Tim Martin, but what 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 I will say is just I will say what I see. What you do see here is a is a company that that is incredibly well run. The staff retention levels are very good. Yeah, what does it do? I mean, it pays pays above it pays, above average wages. Pays above living wage, um, and it gives free shares. I think that's really interesting. You know, and I, I mean, this is part of a big sort of a broad debate that's happening around the future of capitalism. But to get your staff involved, you know, in the ownership of the yeah. business, I think is a really great thing. Yeah, and I don't think the company gets enough praise for this. If John Lewis was doing this, everyone would be shouting about it. And, uh, I mean, John Lewis has done this, but obviously hasn't got any money to do it anymore. Ooh, well, we'll talk about that another time. But um, <laughs> but um, people talk about a changing, changing model of capitalism and way of doing business. And, you know, I think I don't see how you could criticise this. You get back to the basics. You know, it has a very simple and powerful business model of selling you know, you're not going to get haute cuisine in a we- in a Weatherspoons. I know, but you'll get reasonable food, drinks, good beer, a lot of lot of cask ales and and real ales in there, and you'll get them at good prices in pubs that are clean and tidy and well maintained. And that is a simple model that goes through nearly, I think they've about eight hundred and eighty odd pubs now, something like that, and it works, and it works, and they're getting six percent like for like. Others in the sector are getting two percent or less. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, Weatherspoon was has often held up as a company that is sort of destroying other pubs within the sector, and so that you get a high street where a Weatherspoon moves in and everything else goes bust, which which is possibly true. Yeah, there's another side to it. There's a there's a Weatherspoons that opened up about five years ago where my in laws live. Um, this is a market town outside Peterborough. They took over an old post office, I think it was. They spent two million quid on it, and it's packed. But actually, it brings people into the town. Now, I don't know what the performance of the other pubs has, has been, but some of them closed down before Weatherspoons came, and as far as I'm aware, very few. There's still other pubs that are that are continuing to trade. And you talk to... My father-in-law is sort of on the local sort of business forum, and all the local business people think that Weatherspoons has been a force for good. So there are two sides to it. You know, it is doing it is doing well because it is offering customers what they want. My God, you know, who would have thought it? Exactly, you know. And it's like <laughs> we do love to bash. We do love to bash successful companies and successful people in this country. And I think. This has done. This has done a good job, and in, you know, as far as the shareholders are concerned, profits have been quite hard to grow. But the company is doing a couple of things which have quite good in terms of making shareholders better off in the long run. 
I mean, I, I really like the the property strategy. Yes, me too. Um, and I think this is this is what a lot of actually retailers they've gone the opposite way. Yeah, uh, and you know, Marks and Spencer's, who I watched a documentary on Channel Five last night about poor old Marks and Spencer. My understanding is that you know they have moved to the sort of uh, sale and leaseback model over the years, where the spoon is going the other way. They are buying yeah. properties. They're doing that the they're reverse. operating out of the reverse. So, so I mean, I mean, I don't know how far they're going to go with this, but I, I think if you look back to two thousand and ten, this the sort of split of the ownership of the pubs is about forty percent freehold, sixty percent leasehold, and now it's the other way around. You know, clearly what you're doing here is you are, yes, you have to take on extra borrowings, but actually the company is using financing this, not really by shifting its debt up that much, pays a flat dividend of about 12 pence a share for the last, you know, several years. It then uses the cash flow or has been using the cash flow to buy out leaseholds, turn them into freeholds, and then buy back shares. And the share counts come back quite a lot although you mentioned that slowed that slowed this year they didn't do that much um last few years they've done quite a lot probably not a bad thing considering the share price has gone up quite a lot i'm not so sure that buying back shares at 21 times earnings for this kind of business is the right thing to do now yeah i mean the shares are expensive but 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 you know what you are getting is increasingly this asset back in i think that's a really powerful thing yeah you got the asset back in you've got very good underlying cash flow you've You've not really got much worry here that the assets are underinvested either. Um, the accounting of this business is also very clean. And, um, you know, you read the annual reports, and annual reports are a sort of theme for me this week. We'll come on to that. They, the company does tell you a lot about what's going on. So you take the time to read about Weatherspoons, and you can learn a lot, and you can, you know, you can form your own opinion on it. Not cheap though. Shares not cheap, so no, so yeah. maybe one to kind of stick on a watch list. Yeah, they look pretty expensive now. Wait for you buy an opportunity. You you mentioned you know clarity of reporting, and uh, I, I saw you tweet on my way into work that you'd uh, take a look at Next's update today, and 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 specifically you're impressed by how clear it presents the business. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean they're always good. I haven't had time to read it all, but they put an announcement on the stock exchange and RNS. Uh, and the stock exchange, and then there was a link to the half-year report, which is absolutely packed. What, what is it you like about it? What are they doing just that the, perhaps other people are not? They're just very, very honest and very, very clear at explaining good things and bad things that can happen within its business and what it means. Um, you know, for example, they will they'll go into a lot of depth about, you know, what happens if, you get a terrible situation on the high street and you get 10% decline in like-for-like sales for many years and what it means for the business. Um, They will go into great lengths of explaining things like their warehousing strategy, their sourcing strategy, their online retailing strategy, how they're trying to make things work, what they're trying to do to move the business forward. And they go into incredible amounts of depth relative to what you get from other companies and it's just it's just so refreshing and i just think investors don't read professional investors are, are terrible I, you know my experience with professional investors is that very few of the people i work with actually read annual reports and i always say to private investors this 
document or PDF file that you can get off download off the company's website has huge amounts of of um, information, and if you just immerse yourself in it, quietly read about it, you can learn huge amounts about about businesses and companies. And and that is that. I mean, the the magazine column you've written this week um, is is about this specifically. It's it go back to, to the annual report, yeah. and it's it's basically a primer. Uh, back to basics is the name of the column. It is, and, going and that's to, exactly that. Yeah, it's going to be a series of of articles I'm going to be writing over the next few weeks, which are just taking the annual report. I mean, the company I've used is a simple one. It's Marston's, which is a brewing and pub company, because everybody understands brewing and pubs, hopefully. And you just take take the what what you're given, and you just do what I consider to be pretty basic, simple stuff, and you can show people hopefully i can show people what you can learn about businesses and i think it's fascinating i, I mean it, it does sound you know perhaps amongst our listenership and our readership there are people who are more experienced than yeah but i but you know my view and actually i got a letter uh, which i sent to you yeah, from, from a guy who was uh, a former accountant and you know worked in investment and and he and he said you know i'm gonna flatter your your ego a little bit now he said you know he he, he reads your articles and he's learning stuff from them I think you said to me the other day you wrote something yourself and you learned something yourself. <laughs> I, 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 but this is it. I, I, you know, I learn stuff by writing my articles. I mean, I think you know, I, I, it's it's something that I've. I suppose I've never known anything anything different because when I started my career as an analyst twenty odd years ago, that's what I was taught to do. You know, I worked for a small money management company we weren't we didn't talk to brokers because we were in liverpool or leeds or the north of england and we weren't you know we didn't pay a lot we wouldn't pay lots of commission to brokers and we were taught and we went on training courses and we did the securities institute diploma which had some fantastic exams on annual reports and accounts and investment analysis and I just spent my whole working week essentially buried in annual reports, not just the recent ones, but stuff from 10, 15 years before. And I found out that by by reading them, I could I actually knew a lot more about businesses than a lot of city brokers. And when I eventually worked to the, went to the city, work in the city, I kept doing the same thing. And then since I've become a writer, I've done done the same thing. I've, I don't get as much time to do it as a writer, but you know, a private investor who has plenty of time on their hands and can take them what tell themselves away to a quiet spot and read, I uh, I just think it's great. And it's part of my book. You know, the book that I wrote is a little bit about that. But even if you don't have masses of time to yeah. like you know sit there and pore over years and years of annual reports, you should always go back to it. You know, if you're looking for something specific within within a company's accounts, I am a great believer that I don't believe that investing is a painting by numbers exercise. But what I do believe is that the numbers that a company produces in its financial statements can paint the picture of a company. And I always always think it's very good advice to look at the numbers first, build up your own picture of the company, which 
which is great because it, it allows you to think independently, which is so important in investing. Well, that's what that's what you did in the in the column this week. Yeah, you know, you, you went through the the Marston's income yeah. statement and it took out sort of you know ten key points. Yeah, and then you you build up your own picture, and then you build up your own view. You build up. You think, okay, that's an issue I want to look at more. That's something that's a bit puzzling. And then you go back. And you find out what the company has to say or what the company's written about it. And sometimes it's helpful, you get some explanation, and sometimes you'll get companies who you think, well, this looks completely different to company to what I've just looked at. Um, because companies do uh, um, sometimes stretch things a little bit. I mean, not all annual reports are of the same quality. No, but there are some, there are some good ones out there. And it's not just, it's not just the numbers. I think, I think you get companies... Talking about um, their business, their strategy. Some some of them are absolute gold. Well, that's what you, I mean. You've often said, you know. Uh, well, so obviously, you're very good at looking at the numbers. You've often said, actually, you know, sometimes park the numbers. You know, tell me, tell me what this business is trying yeah. to do. You, you, you know, and this is this is something. I mean, you know, when I was younger, I was too focused on the numbers, and I think as I've got older. Because maybe because I just feel that feel quite comfortable with numbers, you know, a large a large part of my attention is focusing on what the businesses does, what it does differently, what's good about it, what's bad about it, and ideally, you you should bring the two together. Mm. You know, I am not an accountant. I am not a trained accountant, and you know, i i can do I can do arithmetic, and I can understand how money flows around and links and what it what it means primarily because you know it does take experience to do it but i just think you don't need to be a trained accountant to do this kind of kind of stuff a lot of people find it quite dry don't want to be bothered with it but i think that not only do you get an insight into a business that perhaps other people won't do because they don't want to do this kind of work but you also learn about risk as well. You learn about the risks of a business and obviously protecting yourself from risk is just as important as picking a winner. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm always going to be a fan of this kind of thing. Indeed. So income statement this week, I think you're going to look at the balance sheet next week yeah. and presumably then you're going to move on to the cash flow. Statement. Yeah, and then, we'll, and then we'll move into the other sort of bits and bobs of in, in the annual report, like management discussions and things that you can pick up elsewhere as well. So hopefully it's going to be, fingers crossed, it's going to be an interesting series of uh, of articles for the readers that piece the, you know, piece the jigsaw of a business together. Yeah, and as, as I say, even if you are an experienced investor and you are, you know, someone who does follow the accounts, I think I think it's worth reading this because there are just there's just little tricks that you may have forgotten or yeah. you know, oh, we never all even learn, thought about. It's, we all uh, learn, we all make mistakes, we all forget things. Yeah, absolutely. Let's just quickly head back to next. Yeah, bit of a tangent there. Uh, what what do we make of the numbers then? Uh, all right, all right. The, I think the problem here is that there isn't really any growth in this business. Mm. The online the online business is going pretty well as it has been for the last few years, but the high street shops are really really suffering and pretty much undoing all of the good work that the online business does they they don't seem in a hurry to kind of retrench though from that high street position well I th- I, I think, they, uh, they can't to some extent i mean what they will do is 
good thing about Next is it's got quite short short lease lease length on its portfolio, so it does have options on. So it can shift stuff around. It yeah, can... I think you're going to see it closing stuff. Mm. I mean, it's just open one near me. But... Yeah, yeah, but it probably closed the closing. inferior one yeah. somewhere else. My 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 interesting thing on Next, and this is what I can't get my head around Next, and it's and it's I don't know whether to admire its profits margins. Which are incredibly high. You know, its online business is making nineteen. Its next next own label business. So the online business is making about seventeen and a bit percent profit margin, sixteen seventeen percent. And the own label bit of it, the next branded stuff, is making over nineteen percent profit margin. Now you compare that to what other online retailers in homeware and clothing are making, and it is a lot more. And there's also they're also making a good chunk of money on top from selling credit as well. The 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 directory business or the online business is incredibly driven by debt. Is that a is that a a, a danger? Yes, this company absolutely it is. Um, and I did some work on this. I don't know whether I've done one for the Investors Chronicle or in a previous previous job, but. Um, there is definitely, you know, I've done some research looking at the bad debt of the directory business and the credit business, and it does spike. Good news at the moment is actually that bad debts were lower than a year ago, and they're not big numbers in terms of the overall business. So there's not a worry on debt at the moment or credit quality at the moment. But um, it is a it is a credit-driven business. And Nex are making quite healthy profits on that. I think the interest rate they charge on that, I've not looked at it for a while, but it used to be about 22.5%. Good Lord. And, um, <laughs> and then, I, don't, I just don't understand why, then, why people would pay that. And then you, get, you, know, you look at a business that's selling products for 19% profit margin, and then you've got Assos on next to nothing. Dunelm's making 12% selling homewares out of its stores. Boohoo! You could argue that slightly different businesses making about eight nine percent profit margin, and Next is making eighteen nineteen percent. Is, is the credit profit within that? No, figure? no, no. The credit profits on top of that. So that's just that is just the profit margin of selling stuff, not selling credit. And to me. You know, it's either the best thing since sliced bread, or it's a case of mind your eye because these margins cannot stay this high. Because no. it tell, it's, it's it's either telling that they're wonderfully efficient business, and they have some sort of economic moat that can protect them, or they're charging their customers too much, and eventually it'll get competed away. My worry would be it would be the latter, but it might not happen quickly. They they might argue that they're product is just of a higher quality and therefore they can charge a higher price um i, I did hear overhear a conversation about boohoo in, in particular recently uh, on a train two young girls talking about what they were buying and their concerns about fast fashion and that, yep. they were saying you know this this stuff is just rubbish yeah but i don't think next stuff's particularly good <laughs> <laughs> and it is pretty highly priced you know this clothing you know you mentioned the issues there but is next a premium clothing retailer? No, but it's not ludicrously expensive either. You know, it's 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 mid market. The squeeze, what you would have usually called the squeezed middle, middle. It, so. You know, 
I, there's, there's a lot I admire about this business. Yeah, keep want to keep an eye on again. Yeah, should we should we round off with uh, SSE? Yeah, um, power. Yeah, which I, I have to say, for me, I find these companies just almost uninvestable. I I I, I don't trust the the level of dividends being paid. The the level of political interference seems yeah. ridiculous. The obviously the demands on them as as businesses to keep providing what they're providing and the ease of which you can now switch. I just don't know why you go near it. I, I think the energy market is a complete mess. I, I don't think that any. I don't think that. I don't think anybody can look consumers straight in the eye here and say that it actually works for them. In that there doesn't seem to be a company out there that can consistently offer cheaper gas and electricity to households and businesses it seems to be a complete merry-go-round based on what what uh, supplies are available and for how long you can get a cheap deal and lock yourself into a cheap power supply for two years pass it on to your customer at the end of the two years your bill goes up by 40 percent and you have to and you have to switch i did switch recently went to one of the little, little uh, green independents a company called bulb yeah i heard of that i actually switched i switched Back to a, one of the big six. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, but it's, I mean, I guess this is the point of this market. Away, what, fr- away from the company that's bought SSE. Which was... Ovo. Ovo, yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I guess that's the thing. I mean, I must have switched. I'm generally a guy that doesn't mess around with this sort of stuff. I've had the same mobile phone contract for years, yeah. the same bank for years, but power, yeah, I'll switch. But At every given opportunity. But this has been an absolute millstone around the neck of SSE. It used it, you know, it made some very large profits out of this um in the early days i mean one of the th- one of the reasons why sse got into this business and obviously it inherited had it inherited through southern its southern electric business and its scottish hydro business but scottish and southern used to be a big fossil fuel generator with big coal stations big gas stations and having someone to sell it to meant that you could hedge you, you guaranteed a market for your generating output. So you it was a nice hedge for your generating output. Now, that's largely fallen away. And also the government has intervened with like price capping mm. and it's made it much more difficult. I mean, you can see the problems that Centric is having in this market. It's, you know, really, really hurting. And they've got out of it. They tried to merge it with NPower's business um, last year. And it didn't work, and Ovo's come along, uh, which is a bit of an upstart, and has been winning a lot of customers. And this really puts Ovo into the big league. I don't think this is going to get blocked by the competition authorities. I think SSE will be glad to see the back of this. Well, it's like quite a small number for uh, for you know a, a power supply, domestic power yeah. supply business. It's made, five hundred million. Yeah, it's just not making much money. I mean, it all depends what your what your wholesale supply contract is whether you can make money you know, if you're in if you're locked into a wholesale supply contract to buy electricity and gas at the wrong price and you've got an energy cap then you know you can get squeezed as you and, say though having flogged this the actual domestic supply business is now a pure pure play generator it's 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 essentially a renewable a renewables generator big position in uh, wind farms offshore onshore wind farms and a bit of hydro electricity up in Scotland, and then it's also got electricity grids. 
So it owns the Scottish equivalent of the national grid, and then it owns distribution networks, um, which take the electricity off the grids into people's homes, and then it also owns gas grids, gas distribution grids as well. Or It's got stakes in gas distribution grids. That sounds like a much better place to be. It is. It is, and they are, you know, there's there's grounds for thinking that there's lots of money that need to be spent, particularly on electricity grids. And Scottish and Southern has got some big projects about linking up the, the islands, the Scottish islands, the main the mainland with new transmission, electricity transmission. Um, also, big installations of wind turbines. The problem you've got is that these businesses are regulated, and they've been making very good money over the last few years. Um, primarily because they can cut costs, they've been growing their assets, but more than anything else, they've been able to borrow incredibly cheaply. Now, these are the kind of assets, because they are pretty stable assets, that you that you can actually load these businesses up with quite a lot of debt. Maybe 60 to 70% of your asset value can be financed by debt. And when the regulator sets prices that they can charge their customers, it assumes a cost of financing. That cost of financing has plummeted over the last three, four years. And the danger for these companies is that the regulator is going to come along, and it's already talking about this, and it's going to assume that these these businesses are going to can finance themselves a lot cheaper, and to bring their returns down in line with the cost of that finance, they cut the prices. That means they get less profit. And then you start questioning, is there enough profit to pay the dividend? And this is, yeah, this is the big worry. You talk about it being a potential yield trap in yeah, your Yeah, because all, SSE been, had been overpaying its dividend for years and years and years. And if you look at its share price chart, share price chart's gone nowhere for years. And it, it almost became a slave to this dividend. And its profits were going nowhere for years and years and years, and yet its dividend was getting higher and higher and higher. Not an entirely unusual situation in the FTSE 100, it has to be said. N- indeed. And uh, then then they came out with the N-Power deal and said, oh, we're selling N-Power, which doesn't... Selling, we want to merge with N-Power, but we don't make a lot of money, but there was a big dividend cut because of it. I and mean, this was going to come anyway. And I think it was they were paying 97 pence a share last year, and it's come back coming down to 80 for this year. And that still looks very, very thinly covered, um, barely covered actually by profits, never mind cash flow. And the danger is as we get to 2021, 2022, the regulator comes in, they cut prices, that dividend may have to be cut again. And my fit, my and they're, fit, they're forecasting dividend increases. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. Conse- analyst consensus is for you know 80 pence for March 2020, going out to sort of 84, 85 pence by sort of 2022. But the earnings are, are going to be sort of 88 this year, 100 and a bit, and then back to 98. And I'm not so sure there's enough comfort here. And that's before you start talking about politics. Lots of potential for nasty surprises. Yeah, I think that it looks still looks a bit risky to me. Fine. Avoid. Thank you, Phil. I think that's all we've got time for.
Let me talk you through what we've got in the magazine. All the usual the stock screens and sector focuses. We're looking at uh, emissions targets for the uh, mining and oil industries in the, the sector focus. Algae's taking a look at its momentum screen. Again, another busy week on the results front. Lots of AIM companies now reporting all the usual tips and comments and personal finance stuff, which they will be talking about on their podcast tomorrow, including a Big look at investment trusts and uh, and ones that are trading at quite significant discounts. Michael Taylor is back in the magazine this week looking at how you trade breakouts. Michael Taylor saved someone's life this week, apparently. He did, yes. Good Lord. Well done, well done Michael. Absolutely. Good man. Um, anyway, he's in the magazine this week, uh, backed by popular demand. Uh, and the cover feature. We don't talk about this company very much, Phil, because I'm pretty sure it would not pass any of your quality tests whatsoever. Sports Direct. I was in there a couple of weeks ago buying some T-shirts with my son. Excellent. Far cheaper than JD Sports. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and what we're talking about here is, I mean, it's been a fascinating story at Sports Direct, and it has implications for lots of things. I mean, the high street generally, but this is this is a really interesting company, particularly in the context of how well JD Sports, which we spoke about last week, has yeah. done. This guy, Mike Ashley, the chief exec and, and founder, we say Tim Martin is a maverick, this guy is probably the most maverick chief exec of all, but is there method to his madness? And that's what we're exploring in this week's cover feature. Magic Mike, can Mike Ashley conjure a turnaround at Sports Direct? Who knows? But uh, thank you for listening. Thanks again, Phil. And we'll be back again next week. Pick up the magazine and all good news agents or get online and subscribe. Thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.